Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It is me and Christopher. I am so excited. I love recording with Chris. And we have a very, very interesting guest for you guys today. Chris, tell us who we've got on. Hi, Alina. Yeah, we have got Nathan Amin, who is a historian from Carmarthenshire, who specialises in the Tudors and the War of the Roses, having written his best-selling book, The House of Beaufort, Tudor Wales and York Pubs, and is here to talk to us about his new book, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders. Hi, Nathan. Hiya, both. How are you doing? Uh, do you know what? I, we've been having a really great chat, everyone. You've missed it, on uh, especially talking about things like on the Tudors and people talking on Twitter and things like that and how people always have to correct you. So I think Nathan's going to have to correct me a lot today because my knowledge on the Tudors stems from no comment of anything else. Let's move on anyway. Uh, we'll kick off with the first question. So since the death of Richard II, the English monarchy has been upset with usurpers and a lengthy civil war. And finally, Henry, Henry VII. I got that right, didn't I? Henry VII. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Perfect. Henry VII takes the throne. How does he try to stabilise his kingship? Oh, well, big question to start off with. You know, he, he stabilises the kingship with great difficulty, but I think it's fair to say he does succeed ultimately. Um, you're right in saying he's come to the throne after 30 years of civil war, you know, the, the, the famous Wars of the Roses, as they later became known as, and he's got a problem. Previous kings have been repeatedly booted off the throne. No king for the previous 60-odd years has has handled the succession well. You know, we have um, Henry VI, who ultimately was booted off and killed. We have Edward IV, who when he died, he left two children behind, uh, the boys that are known as the Princes of the Tower and were ultimately disappeared, probably killed in my opinion, but they certainly were disappeared. Then we have Richard III, who was killed, his son having already predeceased him. So, you know, Henry's come to the crown and he's, he's got a problem. He's got to work out how to break this cycle. Um, and again, it is something that he does. First and foremost, he marries Elizabeth of York. So, you know, Henry is descended from the House of Lancaster, or he's at least related to the House of Lancaster. Elizabeth is the daughter of Edward IV, the niece of Richard III, and is of the House of York. Now, how to break the cycle? Well, Henry marries Elizabeth of York and symbolically unites the warring houses. Now, people have often considered this to have been a later creation of William Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare created the idea of the union of the two houses. But 
Shakespeare didn't make this up. This was a policy of Henry VII. He needed to get the Yorkists on his side. He was of the Lancastrians. He already had them on his side. By marrying Elizabeth of York, he united the two warring factions. And the majority of English people of the day, they, you know, they accepted this. They didn't want any more war. War is not stabilizing. No one prospers during war. So Henry unites the wars, the, the, the houses, first of all. Second of all, you know, to, to stabilize his kingdom, he's really got to uh, enforce civil obedience on his subjects. So for the previous 30 years, the Wars of the Roses, you've got an, um, an overmighty nobility. The nobility are making moves that are cost, costing kings their crown. Um, we have the famous uh, nobleman, Warwick the Kingmaker. You know, as the name suggests, he was making, making and breaking kings. So Henry knew that he had to break his nobility's power. And he does this, first of all, by centralising much of the mechanics of government. You know, he takes control of a lot of things himself. And he promotes individuals who are loyal to him um, rather than just being the great and powerful nobility. So he gets a, a collection of uh, the term is used for them is new men. These are just, you know, everyday administrators and servants who really handle much of the mechanics of government himself. He uses money. He uses money to enforce stability on his kingdom. Henry has a reputation for being a great miser, but that's not really the case. What Henry was, was avaricious. So he uses the law to aggressively pursue his feudal rights. So customs duties, crown land revenues, profits of justice. He goes after everyone and everything in his kingdom to get all the money due to him. It's ruthless. It's ruined his reputation forevermore as a king who who went after his people to get the money. But all, what he was doing was he was making himself insuperable. You know, he was making himself by far the richest man in the kingdom whilst limiting the power of his nobility. So they could no longer afford to overthrow him. Um, I always say I, I would much rather lose my coin than lose my head. And that's essentially what he's done. You know, yes, he's taken people's money, but he hasn't gone on a wide-scale killing rampage like kings before him and definitely his son after him, Henry VIII, would do. You know, on the international scene, Henry, Henry became king by being sponsored by the French. The French have put him forward to go over to England with an army and attack the King of England. So Henry knows better than most how kings can be made. So he goes across Europe throughout his reign, negotiating a complex web of treaties um, with the French, with the Spanish, with the Burgundians. By making himself friends with his fellow European rulers, the likelihood of them sponsoring enemies of his to come and attack him, uh, it dwindles. Now, he wasn't always successful at that. There were, you know, times where um, these friendships ebbed and flowed, which is what we're here to talk about today, the pretenders who would come and attack him. But essentially, that was his policy. I'm going to make friends with everybody so that you're not going to come and attack me. And again, that worked. You know, Henry was a pragmatic man, and his intention was to make England prosperous for everybody so that there was no need to overthrow him. You know, so, so he does stabilize the kingdom by effectively hampering his nobility's power and making himself the richest man possibly to ever rule England. 
you know, he he was able to outspend his enemies. And like I said, it, it worked. I mean, we're still talking about the Tudors today. You know, his dynasty reigned for 118 years. Uh, his descendants, the stewards, took over from the Tudors. And in fact, his descendant is still on the throne today. So, you know, the House of Windsor may not be the Tudors, but they are directly descended from him. So he succeeded where previous kings had failed. But at the time, though, there, there is still another Plantagenet who could have a tenuous, if very tainted, claim to the throne, a more accurate, more uh, a better th- claim than Henry. So who was Edward, Earl of Warwick? I think there's, there's two things to consider, first of all, when we talk about the claims. Um, many people, you know, to this day still mention that Henry, Henry VII, Henry Tudor, himself had a very tenuous uh, claim to the throne. You know, he was descended through a female line. He was descended from a family called the Beaufort family, who were at one point illegitimate children of uh, a royal duke. So Henry's claim was not the best. This is without doubt. You know, he he was um, it was way down any theoretical line of succession. Warwick, the Earl of Warwick, was a, a Yorkist. He was a Prince of York. He was the nephew of Edward the Fourth and Richard the Third. Now, he himself had a claim to the throne. And if you are somebody who puts more credence in the House of York having a better claim than the House of Lancaster, um, which is possible, then you would say that Edward, Earl of Warwick, had a better claim than Henry. Now, this is true. However, the reason that Warwick was not put forward for the crown in 1485 is because his father had been the Duke of Clarence. And the Duke of Clarence had been executed for treason in 1478. This Duke of Clarence is the brother of Edward IV and Richard III. You know, he was the third brother of York. And he was allegedly drowned in a barrel of wine, you know, for conspiring against his brother. So when it comes to who takes over from Richard III, not even when Richard III himself became king in 1483, Warwick is conveniently placed to one side because technically his claim is barred because his dad was a traitor. Um, Now, this would cause a lot of confusion and a lot of um, issues, which I'm sure we're going to discuss when Henry Tudor became king, because you're right, there was still this one Yorkist prince with a tainted claim still alive in the kingdom. When Henry becomes king, the first thing he does is he puts Warwick into the Tower of London and he keeps him there locked up. For the next um, for the next fourteen years, because he does have a strong claim. Ultimately, as I try and say, but um, I do get shouted down sometimes on Twitter and and so on. Claim is irrelevant. Who had the best claim is irrelevant. The king is the king because he's the king. And all Henry Tudor did was he came over with a very poor claim, killed the king, took over the country, and Parliament went, "Yep, you're the king." So he won. He became king by conquest, which is exactly the same as what happened um, to William the Conqueror. You know, the, the clues in the name um, it is, it is um, you know, a fair company. The king is the king because he's the king. The claims are irrelevant. But that doesn't mean, of course, that Warwick's claim didn't cause problems for Henry. I just want to add another question in here, because I'm really curious. Was Henry VII's claim legitimate? Because I'm not sure, can you can you do that? Can you just come in and just say, right, okay, I am now king? Is that a legitimate way to become king? It is. Um, if today, if I decided that I wanted to be king, 
And uh, I somehow managed to get Parliament to endorse that. Then I become king. You know, move over, Charles. It's King Nathan the First now. Uh, because ultimately <laughs> what you need in this country is the, uh, the endorsement and the approval of Parliament. So when Richard III becomes king in 1483, I believe that Richard III ultimately usurped the throne. It's a very contentious issue, um, and that's a whole other podcast to, to discuss it on. But Richard III takes the crown away from his nephews, and he becomes king. And he is the legitimate king simply because he managed to get Parliament to agree to it. It's called the Three Estates, um, you know, the church, the lords and the commons. And they agree to it and he becomes king and he is the rightful king because Parliament said he was king. Now, obviously, in very few instances, our Parliament going to do something where they um, force through such a usurpation. But during this century, the 15th century, it's happened numerous times. Um, 1399, Henry IV becomes king. He usurps the crown from Richard II. Parliament agree. Edward IV. When he becomes king in 1461, it works. Parliament agreed to it. Richard III, Henry VII. So, yes, it does actually work that way. You know, if you can get Parliament to agree to it, uh, and obviously in most of these scenarios, Parliament don't really have much choice. You know, the, the, the king, powerful king with his army is saying, make me king. Um, that, that, that's, all, that's all ultimately matters. And when Henry VII does become king, he forces through... Um, a bill of parliament, that parliament agree, saying that from now on, all other claims to the throne are invalid and the crown will remain in perpetuity in the line of Henry VII forevermore. Um, you know, only his descendants from now on can be the kings or queens of England. And that still holds true today. You know, his descendants are still on the throne. Ultimately, it's up to Parliament. Parliament tomorrow can get rid of the monarchy, they can change the monarchy, uh, and so on. Obviously, the chances of that happening are very, very rare, but it's still just how our system works. Sorry, Chris, I just, <laughs> just want to say that I think we should start this plan. This plan sounds really good. How do we convince, or well, even better, what we do is we put people in members of Parliament in that we know, and we can convince, oh my, this is a great plan, let's do this. Um, I, 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 have a, I have a worry that if I did become king, I'd probably turn a bit tyrannical. Um, so maybe I'm not the best, best suited to be put forward. We'll, we'll, make, you, we'll make you queen instead. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> yes, yeah, so what I was going to say was there was at one point where Warwick was put up to be Richard III's heir until uh, Richard had a son. So he, he was properly in line at one point. He, he was properly in line. And Richard's problem there, of course, is... Warwick was, you know, if Warwick's claim was not tainted by his father's treason, Warwick is actually ahead of Richard III in the Yorkist line of succession because his father, Clarence, was Richard's older brother. So Richard himself has jumped over Warwick's claim when he became king, you know, because Warwick is higher in the Yorkist line of succession than Richard III. So it's a bit, it's a, it's a bit of a funny one that Richard has uh, possibly considered reintroducing Warwick into the Yorkist line of succession. But if he's a legitimate candidate, then sorry, Richard, you need to move over and give the crown to the rightful rightful Yorkist prince. Obviously, yeah. he doesn't do that. And then he has his own son. He has a son, 
it's been a while since I've done the War of the Roses, but he has a son, Edward, as well, doesn't he, who dies prematurely? Or, or... Uh, uh, he, he does, yeah. I mean, this is why, not to get too much in there, but when people say that Richard III had no motive to kill the princes in the tower, because why would he? He's now king. He's got nothing to fear from his little nephews. That's not really true, because he had his own son. Now, we know that Richard's son dies in 1484. He dies a, a year after Richard becomes king. And everyone kind of forgets that, because when he dies at Bosworth himself in 1485, he has no children. And that's why Henry's able to become king. People forget he did have a son that died while he became king. So Richard's fear of the princess in the tower is that he had to do something to make sure that in future, his son's claim is not complicated by by any potential complications, you know, any any potential cousins coming back in 10 years' time to to try and reclaim their lost birthright. Um, so, yeah, people do forget that Richard did have a son, and that does explain, in my opinion, why he acted as he did in 1483, which is, you know, bumping off some princes to protect his own dynasty. Um, obviously, it didn't really work out very well for him. So why is there such ready dissension against Henry VII so quickly? I think, obviously, we, we remember these plots and conspiracies against Henry throughout his reign. And the 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 danger is, of course, to try and see this as Henry being a, a wildly unpopular king um, and everybody wanted him bumped off. That's not really the case. The majority of Englishmen at this time have decided to throw their weight behind the new Tudor regime. Uh, the, this guy's a new king. We're sick of war. Let's get on with it. And Henry is a unifying candidate he's not pro either side he does try to truly unite the kingdom behind him as you know the new way forward the new path forward and that works you know in his in his um early governments there are ex-yorkists that are ex-lancastrians um there are people from all parts of the former political spectrum behind him however you can't possibly satisfy everyone in this scenario. The previous king has been bumped off, and with him have, have gone his supporters. Now, those supporters are given a choice. You either reconcile to the new Tudor regime, or you're unemployed. You know, it's kind of like the modern day. You know, Liz Truss has come in with a new government, and Rishi Sunak and the former um, members of the cabinet are moved to the side. You know, you either put up or shut up kind of scenario. So you do get these few handful of, of malcontents, these you know former Ricardian uh, administrators who are not happy that they've lost their jobs, they've lost their mansions, they've lost everything. They're not going to be happy, and they do start to conspire. It's not very many. You know, most did decide to reconcile to the new king. At the end of the day, what else are you really going to do? Um, but there are a handful of plotters who, who decide... We're not going to have this. You, you know, the, when Henry became king, I think many people thought that he was going to be a bit of a puppet. No, nobody had really heard of this guy. Um, you know, he was just some little Welsh earl who had been living abroad for 14 years. I mean, who the hell was Henry Tudor? And they probably thought that they could mould him and make him their puppet. And, they, you know, they were dealing with the, with the wrong man. You know, this is one of the most um, stubborn, strong-minded kings of England we've had. Um, who was unlike previous kings because of the way life had shaped him. Um, but ultimately, not everyone is going to be happy with that. And as I say, you, you, had, you did get a handful of people who decided to go, we're not having this. Um, 
we're not having this Tudor and they start to they start to quietly plot his downfall. Because why not? Previous kings have been bumped off. We can bump this one off and start again. And you know, like I said, the crown had become very unstable during the century because kings kept on losing losing it, which is why what Henry did is quite spectacular, really, in restabilizing that with great difficulty, but he did it. Well, if you want to replace the king, you really need to have a, an alternate candidate for kingship. And so with one of the first major rebellion, you get Lambert Simnel, to put it bluntly. Who the hell was Lambert Simnel? <laughs> uh, good question, and it depends who you speak to. Uh, but since this is my turn on the podcast, I'm going to give you my, um, my version of events, uh, which may or may not be Tudor propaganda. I'm not sure. Right, Lambert Simnel. So in 1487, so two years into Henry VII's reign, there's suddenly uh, a shadowy conspiracy starting in Oxford where somebody has said that this boy in front of us, this 10-year-old boy, is actually the real Earl of Warwick. And he is therefore the Yorkist prince. He should be king. And around him, there's a small cabal of these dissidents who are going, this is Warwick. Yeah, he is. he's the rightful king. Um and then slowly, this um, this little conspiracy, it doesn't really make much headway in in Britain, uh, mainland Britain. So they, they, they cross the channel to Ireland. Now, the reason they go to Ireland is because Ireland is a very Yorkist-minded island. Uh, Warwick, his father, the Duke of Clarence, had actually been born in Dublin. So when, when this small conspiracy comes over to Dublin and they tell the Irish... Hey, look, Irish, this boy in front of us is the Earl of Warwick. Very quickly, the nobles of Ireland rise up in arms. They're going to invade England and they're going to put this uh, Yorkist prince on the, um, on the English throne. And you, know, you can understand why they've done that. I mean, this is the, of course, this is the era before BBC breaking news alerts. They're not being told what's happening back in London at this time. And what is happening is very interesting. Because word gets back to London, there's a conspiracy, and these bunch of um, these bunch of plotters are saying they've got the Earl of Warwick. So what does Henry do? He goes, well, but I've got the Earl of Warwick in the tower, <laughs> so I don't know who the hell they've got, but this is the Earl of Warwick. So he opens up the tower, he prints out uh, the Earl of Warwick, who's about 11 years old at this point, and uh, he takes him to St Paul's, and shows him off to all of the nobility and the citizens of London and goes, behold, here is the Earl of Warwick. So it very quickly saps any, um, any, any support for this conspiracy that's happening, and that's why they move to Ireland. Because there's no BBC breaking news alerts on people's iPhones, the Irish don't know about this. So who is that boy that they've got? Um, Afterwards, after the conspiracy comes to an end, investigations show that this boy was somebody called Lambert Simnel, a 10-year-old son of a joiner from Oxford. Now, many people to this day still say Lambert Simnel. That's such a crazy made-up name, but it's not. I've done quite a lot of research into checking uh, the records and the chancery rules of the era, and the name Lambert is quite widespread in the 15th century. There's plenty of Lamberts. Um, the, the Arbit of Crowland Arby at the time was Lambert Fostyke, for example. Um, the name Simnel. There are many Simnels living in England at this time, including a chap called Thomas Simnel, 
who is a joiner who's living in Oxford eight years before this conspiracy. So what I believe has happened was the traditional story, um, traditional in my view being the correct story, uh, to others it's fake propaganda trying to cover up um, a real prince, um, is that this small cabal of Oxford rebels needed somebody to front their rebellion. And the reason I say this is a couple of months earlier, another rebellion or uprising was attempted in Warwickshire by two brothers called the Staffords. They tried to lead a rebellion against the king, Henry VII, and they were walking through the streets chanting, Warwick, 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 um, you know, alluding to the, the Earl of Warwick in the tower. They found very little support because who's going to join a rebellion when your leader is in the Tower of London? You know, you need someone to rally behind. So six or seven months later, when a second rebellion starts, suddenly they do have a leader. They have a 10-year-old boy in the front of this army who is their Earl of Warwick. And when he goes to Ireland and people see him, they're so excited by this prospect, they actually crown him King of England in Dublin. So this is my belief that what Lambert Simnel was just a young, innocent lad in Oxford who this conspiracy have grabbed to show to people that he's the real king, let's go and support him. And the, the, the conspiracy grows and uh, they, they are eventually able to invade England. We're going to talk about that invasion because they do invade. So Simnel, Warwick, I don't know, whatever we're going to call him today. Talk us through this invasion and how does that pass? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. So this army is chiefly Irish. There's a few Englishmen, you know, the leaders in the conspiracy, and they get on board a bunch of German mercenaries. So they invade Northern England um, in June 1487, this massive Irish-German army with a little 10-year-old boy in front of it, um, and they land in the north. Now, the north of England is traditionally seen as the heartland of Richard III. So when this, you know, in inverted commas, Yorkist army lands in north of England, they are anticipating the English are going to rise up behind them and they're going to march to London and kill uh, that Tudor usurper. It doesn't really go their way. They get, they get very minor support from a few irrelevant barons, but they don't get any support from the major earls. They don't get any support from the gentry. When they, when they reach the city of York and they demand to be let in as a Yorkist army, the people of York say, no, you know, go away, jog on. 
We're, we're not. We're not. We're not having you. It's nonsense. Um, and they start to continue to march south because by this point, once you've invaded with an army, you may as well go and try and fight. Um, and again, two years earlier, Henry the Seventh had invaded with an army that was chiefly French, French mercenaries, and he won. You know, he should. There's no way in hell Henry the Seventh should have won at Bosworth. He had a weaker army, but he did because battles are, um, you know, they don't always go to plan. You know, there's a lot of upsets. So these, so these invaders have decided, screw it. We may go well, um, to use a quote from a chronicler, try the fortunes of war, and that's exactly what they do. Um, the king Henry the Seventh, he can't let this. He can't let these people march through his kingdom. You know, he he knows what happens when you let people march to your kingdom, he'll end up, you know, slung over the back of a horse like Richard III. So he marches north with his royal army and they have a major battle um, at a village called Stoke in Nottinghamshire. So this is the Battle of Stoke Field. And this is truly the last battle of the Wars of the Roses. Uh, people always say Bosworth was, but this battle is, is still a dynastic battle for the crown of England. And Henry's royal army defeat. The, the rebels, you know, the Irish men in the in the in the in the rebel army, they didn't really have the best of gear, and I'll, they were, you know, they, they were eventually just cut down like dull dull beasts. Uh, the court goes, so Henry defeats them. Henry Henry overcomes this rebellion, kills the leaders, and takes young Lambert Simnel hostage and. Uh, interviews him in his tent to try and find out who the hell this boy is because he's clearly not the Earl of Warwick because the Earl of Warwick is still safely cooped up back in London. So does, does Henry show the boy mercy or does he treat him as a, as a rebel and execute him with the others? Well, Henry proved actually quite magnanimous in victory. Again, he, he has this odd reputation in the present day for being some sort of monster and tyrant. Um, you know, we could arguably suggest that's his son. You know, Henry VIII didn't show much mercy to anybody who rebelled against him. Back in 1487, Henry VII interviews this boy and he quickly judges that he's clearly too innocent to have played a part and he was a pawn of men. So Henry um, doesn't execute him. He actually gives him a job in the royal kitchens. So he takes him back to London and puts him to work in the royal kitchens. Now, Lambert Simnel grows up. Uh, he eventually becomes trainer of the King's Hawks. You know, this is actually a really good position for, you know, an average Joe, you know, a, a boy, a son of a carpenter from Oxford to be, become trainer of the King's Hawks is a good, is a good gig. And he's actually, he actually outlives Henry VII and he lives deep into the reign of Henry VIII. We know that Lambert Simnel is still alive as late as 1525, um, you know, which is, I think, my math's not great, 30-something years after the Battle of Stokefield. And I always say, if Lambert Simnel truly was of Yorkish royal blood, the one man in the kingdom who is not keeping a threat alive is Henry VIII. And Henry VIII never touches him, which to me is one of the biggest confirmations that this boy truly was just a boy from Oxford. But yeah, you know, he ended up having having quite a, a decent life in the end for somebody who was once crowned a king as a 10-year-old boy. I mean, that's some story to tell in the taverns of London, isn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, just going back to Henry VIII, to be Warwick's own sister, Margaret Paul, ends up executed in her, I believe she was in her 70s at the time. So, yeah, if Warwick was alive and the falconer in the royal household, he probably would have ended up on the block as well. Absolutely. So the next pretender is Piker Warbeck. And I know this and I know things about this one. I do. I feel very proud because he was pushed on by Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, who was the sister, the sister of Richard III. Am I correct? You are absolutely nailed on. Perfect. Right. So talk to us about Perkin Warbeck. Who was he and what was his claim to the throne? Um, right. Perkin Warbeck. So four years later, after the Simnel conspiracy, some, you know, handsome 17-year-old boy is found walking through the streets of Cork Island. And straight away, people turn and go, who is this kid in a, in a, in a silk um, in, in, in nice, expensive silk clothes. He must be a prince of England. And the rumours are that he's actually a bastard son of Richard III. Before, very quickly, he is, he is um, held up to actually be Richard, Duke of York, who is one of the younger princes in the Tower, who has been presumed dead for the previous eight years. So straight away, the Irish go, this must be one of the princes of the Tower. He's the rightful king of England. And a new conspiracy is born. And um, the boy's name, as we later learn, uh, again, in my opinion, the traditional history is fairly sound on this. His name was Perkin Warbeck. Many still believe he truly was Richard, the Duke of York. Yeah, which leads us to the, the fact that, yeah, there are some historians who do argue that he is Richard, Duke of York. Where, where do you fall on this? Is this just wishful thinking conspiracy theory? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In my opinion, it's um, it's fairly. I'm fairly content that this is just a conspiracy theory. It's very, it's a very complex um, case when you look at it. I feel that most people, uh, it's particularly uh, those of a Ricardian persuasion, they don't want to believe that Richard III killed the princes of the Tower. They want to believe that they survived. So Perkin Warbeck is a good argument for them that Richard III did not kill the princess in the tower because he's still alive all these years later. You know, it's a nice story, but when you're talking about the, in the context of the times, I mean, first of all, those boys pretty much have to die in 1483. Uh, you know, it's it's a unpalatable fact that children had to be murdered, but, you know, we're, we're talking ruthless times, we're talking self-interest uh, and self-preservation. So I believe, first of all, there was no princes alive all these years later for this Perkin Warbeck to, to be truly a prince. Second of all, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests that he truly was a, a fake. Now, he spends he spends seven years going around Europe telling everybody that he was the prince of the tower. And what happened was uh, his elder brother, Edward V, was executed by an assassin and when the assassin came to his chamber to kill him, the assassin let him go. Now, come on, if you've been sent to the Tower of London by the king, probably Richard III, to do a duty, which is to kill the one threat left to the king, you don't just suddenly go, sorry, lad, on your way. I mean, how the hell do you explain that to, to your master? Sorry, I let the boy go. I know that I'm, a, I'm an evil cutthroat hired to do this you know, evil deed, but 
I, sh- I showed a bit of compassion at the end and I let the threat slip away. That just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, that, 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 that just isn't in keeping with the times. But anyway, he says that he goes abroad and he's able to get support from various people around Europe, including Margaret, the Duchess of Burgundy, who he calls his aunt, he calls his aunt and she shows him some support. After he's captured, however, he confesses that his name is Perkin Warbeck and he's from Tonnay in France. Now, in the 1970s, there were documents found in Tonnay which proved the existence of a family that he said he was descended from. He said that his father was called Derek, Derek Osbeck. There is a Derek Osbeck in the Tonnay family records. Um, he gives numerous names in his confession uh, of who his cousins are, where he lived as a child, um, who his mother is, who his grandmother is. All of these names have been traced in the town records. There's very, very good circumstantial evidence if you read beyond the headlines that Perkin Warbeck was truly just a patsy from France sent over to trouble the Tudor king. Because, again, that's exactly what Henry Tudor was himself. Henry Tudor was just, you know, a a patsy sent over by the French to hassle the King of England. Uh, He, you know stumbled onto the throne somehow, so the French have decided to try it again. It's very complex, but again, when you read, when you read into all of the details, there's too, much, there's too much evidence working against Perkin Warbeck truly being a prince in the Tower. The one thing that clinches it for me, truly, is that when he was finally hanged uh, in 1499... Um, sorry, spoiler alert for everybody. When he was finally hanged, he confessed just before that uh, he truly was Perkin Warbeck and not a son of Edward IV. And in the in that day and age, um, with the importance they put on their soul in the afterlife, I truly do not believe that Perkin Warbeck at that point would have lied. I think he was telling the truth that he was never a royal prince. But I get told every day on Twitter I'm wrong, so what do I know? Yeah, so people on Twitter know everything. Historians know nothing. We know nothing. Let's just get out of the room and let everybody on Twitter just run this podcast. <laughs> don't, but no, don't. Let us keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another landing. There is another landing. It's backed by Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy. At this point, he's also married, if I'm not wrong, Catherine Gordon, hasn't he? So he's got like this whole life happening. Uh, he rev- there's a revolt. There's a landing. What happens if there's landing? I mean, obviously, you've given us a spoiler alert. He gets hanged. But talk us through this landing anyway. Well, I mean, first of all, unlike the Lambert Simler conspiracy, it kicks off very quickly. And within weeks, they've invaded England. Warbeck is, is a lot more, it's, a, it's, a, it's much more of a slow burner. Um, first of all, he, la- he arrives in Ireland. The Irish do not support him. Of course, they're not going to support him. Four years ago, they got destroyed supporting another pretender. So the Irish go, we're not having any of this. So he crosses over to France. France supports him. Why wouldn't they? France and England at this point are in a state of war. But Henry VII actually invades France himself and convinces the French king to throw Warbeck out. So Warbeck leaves France. He surfaces in Flanders, and that's where he arrives at the court of his aunt, a so-called aunt, um, Margaret, uh, Margaret of Burgundy. Now, Margaret of Burgundy dis- 
despises Henry VII. She was full of real deep hatred for him. And of course she was. He killed her brother, Richard III. So she really hated him. Now, she's actually quite a, um, she's quite a sad case at this point because, you know, she, she, she's getting on in life. She's the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy. Her, her husband's died. She had no children of her own. All of her brothers are now dead. Um, she's pretty much, you know, exiled in a foreign country. And the only person that she had close to her, which was her stepdaughter, has also died. So, you know, Margaret is quite a very, she's an isolated woman at this time. So when this 17-year-old boy rocks up saying that I am your nephew, it's actually quite understandable perhaps why she's so keen to throw her support behind him. Whether she truly believed it or not is debatable, but she did write letters to the King and Queen of Spain begging them to show him support. They decided not to. So for two years, Margaret tries to support Perkin Warbeck um, in Flanders. She gives him money, she gives him an army. He tries to invade England, but when he lands a deal in Kent, um, which is the most rebellious part of England there is, I mean, the people of Kent back then, they love to rebel. So when he lands there, he assumes that he's going to get support and they're going to together take down the Tudor crown. It doesn't happen. The local people beat them off and uh, they kill 300 of his men and Warbeck is forced to turn around, get back in his boat and he sails all the way back to Ireland. He tries to land at Waterford. The Irish beat him away. Um, he fails to land. So he keeps on sailing, sailing, sailing and he arrives into Scotland. Now, Scotland decide... Uh, they've got a 21-year-old king. We want to go to war with the English. Let's just do it. Um, you know, J- James IV, he just he just wants to scrap. So when Warbeck rocks up, fantastic. I've now got my, my reason to go to war with the English. I'm going to support this boy in front of me who is now calling himself uh, Prince Richard of York, uh, the rightful king of England. And he gives him money. He gives him an army. And he gives him a wife, Catherine Gordon, who is a distant relation of the king. Now, things are looking up for Warbeck. You know, he's got a wife, he's got an army, he's got a new royal mentor. So he, in 1497, together with the Scottish king, he invades the north of England. And it's an absolute disaster. Um, Warbeck, if he truly is a Yorkist prince, shows himself to have none of his predecessors military bearing. Edward IV and Richard III are some of the greatest military figures in English royal history. Warbeck gets so scandalised by how dangerous war actually is, on the very first day of his invasion, he turns around and runs all the way back to uh, Edinburgh, which really upsets the King of Scotland. I mean, Warbeck has shown himself to be a bit of a coward, and Warbeck then keeps a low profile. So that's, that's two invasions he's tried, and they've both been a farce. Uh, six months later, he surfaces once again in a part of the country that hates Henry VII, and that is Cornwall. So the Cornish people had rebelled a couple of months earlier, a tax rebellion, and they went to war with Henry VII at the Battle of Blackheath, and they were crushed. So the Cornish are really bristling in resentment for Henry, Henry VII. They want to kill that Tudor king. So when Warbeck turns up going, hello, I'm Prince Richard, um, they go, yeah, you know what? Let, let, let's have it out again with this Tudor. 
So together, Warbeck and uh, the Cornish invade, and they do march as far inland as Taunton. So this is the first time Warbeck's really been able to land in England, and he gets all the way to Taunton when he learns that Henry VII is coming in the opposite direction with a massive army, and, you know, he's going to kill him. So what does Warbeck do? He runs. He runs and hides again. You know, Warbeck is not... He doesn't seem to have a great deal of strength or bravery in him or courage. He runs and he hides in Bully Abbey on the south coast of England. He's surrounded and he ultimately surrenders. So six, six or seven years of him going all around England, trying to invade, trying to get support in England, it all comes to nothing. It comes to being surrounded in an abbey and he surrenders. And the key thing, the key thing with Warbeck to consider is that he only ever got support from people who hated Henry VII for their own reasons. He went to France. France were in a war with England. He then went to Burgundy. Um, you know, the, the leader, the Dowager Duchess, is a sister of Henry VII, uh, Richard III. He goes to Scotland. He goes to Cornwall. These are people who want to war with Henry VII. They don't really care about Warbeck. He's just the instrument for them to get what they need. Um, and nobody within England truly rises up in support for him. Uh, the most senior person he got any support from is a chap called William Stanley, who was Henry VII's step-uncle, and he was his chamberlain, but he was dressed a knight. You know, no earls, no dukes, no princes ever show any support to Perkin Warbeck. For me, that is also telling that very few people give his claims any credibility. So I guess the, I guess the, the short answer to your question is that uh, he invades three times and they were all pathetic attempts. So ultimately, Warbeck and Warwick end up being executed. And we know that the Tudor dynasty endures for about another hundred and something years. It really doesn't sound like the pretenders stood that much of a chance of overthrowing Henry. Um, no, I don't think they... They did. I mean, obviously, we have the hindsight that Henry VII was successful and he went on to found one of the greatest, or at least the tourist dynasties of all time and so on. But I still think that, objectively speaking, they didn't really have much chance of ever succeeding. Simnel's conspiracy was far more of a threat to Henry, I think, ultimately, than Warbeck's. I mean, Warbeck was a nuisance for a long time. He was always out there. He was annoying but he didn't really do much. I mean, again, every time he invaded, he was a coward. He just ran away. He just couldn't get, he couldn't, he couldn't sell it to, um, to the English people to support him. Simnel's conspiracy, they actually invaded and they, they, um, they drew the Royal Army, the Royal Tudor Army, into a battle. Now, as, as was shown at Bosworth Field, on any given day in a battle, something can swing it the other way. So there was always a danger at the Ball of Stokefield in 1487 that if somebody defected, or perhaps the weather was off a little bit, Henry could have been on the receiving end of a battering. Um, it could have happened to him what he had done to Richard III two years earlier. So there was that danger with the battle. But ultimately, no, I, I don't think they did have much chance of, of success. The key thing is, is how it shaped Henry's mind. Henry VII woke up pretty much every day for most of his reign, unsure if today was the day he was going to get betrayed. 
by someone within. We always say that Henry VII is one of the most suspicious and paranoid uh, and circumspect kings of England. Well, obviously. I mean, this is a boy who is this who is chased out of his homeland at uh, 14 years old, spent 14 years in exile where his enemies, the House of York, were trying to kidnap him and assassinate him. And then when he finally does become king, he's got these plots and his conspiracies working against him. This is a man who is never able to really relax and enjoy the trappings of kingship because he never knew if today was the day that he was getting betrayed. And that is the most important thing about the pretenders. Not so much about what they actually did, because in reality, they did very little. It's how their existence shaped Henry's mind and it shaped much of his policies. Um, For example, the way that he financially punished much of his country to try and make himself um, secure. And we can argue that that paranoia, that... that, um, that, you know, worry, that anxiety that the Tudor dynasty was coming to an end seeped into his son, Henry VIII, who we all know went on and took things to a whole different level in anxiety and paranoia over the succession. And I think that is what the pretender's legacy ultimately is when we discuss the Tudors. Nathan, I've got to say, I know, I know Chris has got his camera off. I haven't got my camera off. I haven't stopped laughing. Okay, obviously there's been some serious points, but I haven't stopped laughing. I think you've been, you've blown my mind. You've been so much fun. You've been so entertaining. I have, do you know what? I'm tempted to go and get your book now and actually read something on the Tudor shock horror horror. Uh, That will never happen with naval history. Sorry, Chris. I, I, can, I can just interject that I did read Nathan's book in the prep for this and I really enjoyed it. So people should go out and buy it. Definitely. I'm going to go out and buy Beaufort's now. Nathan, remind us the name of your book. Uh, so it's called Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, uh, Simnel, Warbeck and Warwick. So it tells the story of these conspiracies in great detail and hopefully exciting detail. Well, let me put it this way. If your book is as good as the way you speak, hell yeah. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. No problems. Thank you very much for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.